Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you haven't ordered your copy of Peter Hart's new book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, now is the time to do it. The Gallipoli Evacuation was one of the most important chapters of the entire Gallipoli story, and this is the first book to explore it in detail. From dithering politicians in London, to the winter storms, to the ingenious ruse that enabled the Allies to escape, such as the self-firing rifles and the silent periods, this book tells the whole gripping story of this life and death gamble. And Peter Hart really is the man to tell this story with his wonderful writing style, his insightful accounts of the history, and most importantly, his use of quotes from veterans of the campaign. The story of the Gallipoli evacuation is really told in the words of the men who were there. The book is now available in softcover or ebook, and you can order it all over the world and pay in your local currency. So visit our website, livinghistorytv.com, to order your copy today. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Welcome to Living History, and it's been a pretty interesting week because something highly unusual has occurred this week. A VC has been awarded posthumously almost 80 years after the act of valour for which uh, it was uh, it was awarded. So we're going to discuss this. It was uh, awarded to uh, Teddy Sheehan, the Victoria Cross. So now Teddy Sheehan VC, who performed these acts of bravery in 1942. So we're going to discuss this highly unusual situation and the specifics of, uh, of Teddy Sheehan's life and death. And joining me to do that is David Howell. David worked at the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne for a long time. He is also the bloke that's probably trekked the Kokoda track more times than anyone else I know. He's an expert on New Guinea and the Second World War. David, thank you very much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me, Matt. Let's start with uh, the story of Teddy Sheehan. Tell us a little bit about Teddy and where he came from and uh, and his war service during the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, so Teddy was a Tasmanian and uh, a picture in your mind, a hardworking uh, Catholic family. His parents uh, um, had 14 children. Uh, they were from um, a little place in, in the Tasmanian village. I've been to it, Latrobe. Um, they were... Uh, you know, you everyday average, uh, I guess, family of that generation, hardworking. Uh, you know, I'm sure it was probably strict, but nonetheless, uh, bred a generation of um, of of resilient Australians, which was uh, lucky as we were heading into the Second World War. Have you seen any um, research that indicates Teddy's motivation for joining up uh, when the when the war broke out? 
I'd say there'd be two things. One, um, given the fact that his job on enlistment was really as a labourer, as a farmhand, uh, and the fact that he'd had uh, five other siblings who were also in in the in the military, um, uh, four, all brothers. Uh, uh, one was in the navy, but the four of them were in the army. And uh, Teddy being quite young, I think he was the youngest and the last of them to enlist, uh, I guess that that would be cause enough. And the fact that I guess they're in Tasmania, somewhat um, uh, separated from from, uh, the mainland, obviously, but with this keen uh, idea that they want to be involved, which was such of those those people uh, and that generation when the Second World War was declared. So Teddy was 18. Uh, when he joined and joined the navy, just tell us about uh, about his military service. Yeah, so he was uh, he joined the Royal Australian Naval Reserve. Uh, he was eighteen years of age. Um, uh, the requirements that were going on in in Australia at that time was that he would have to have done uh, military service uh, if he wasn't in a protected trade. He he didn't wasn't without uh, some medical impairment, but he chose it upon himself, as I said before, because he already had. Um, uh, you know, siblings in, in the services to join up. And when he joins up, he chooses a branch of the Navy. Uh, after his training, he comes not far from where I am now uh, to Western Port down on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria, does some training, uh, as you would, to be a, a rating in the in the Navy. And, um, and yeah, he, he moves on then up to Sydney and he goes to Garden Island. And um, I want you people to think, listeners to think about what was going on uh, and this time, Japan's entered the war. It's 1942. Uh, we have an enemy on our doorstep. And funny enough for uh, Teddy, uh, his uh, he almost had a brush with, with death. And what I mean by that is that he was, uh, with his naval training, went to Garden Island, was on the on the uh, Cutterball, which was a ferry that was being used as um, a barracks, if you will, for, for sailors in Sydney Harbour. And so in May, um, in first night in May 31, 42 Japanese submarines come in, they go for the USS Chicago, fire a torpedo, bounces off and sinks the cuttable. But Teddy's not on it. He's actually undergone his, most of his initial training and he's on leave. So he, he could have very well been uh, caught up in that. But in terms of his training and what he ended up uh, doing, he was trained um, to serve uh, on, on, a, on a weapon system that was on a ship, on several weapon systems he would have been trained in, but he was, uh, and, and what will feature later in the story, he was ch- trained in, in, a, in a cannon uh, that was deck-mounted. Uh, it's called a Oriklin. Uh, it's a, a crew service weapon. It usually takes three or four people. His main role on the, on the weapon system was to be the loader. So you can imagine you have a gun commander. This is a 20-millimeter cannon that's fixed to a ship, mainly used in an anti-aircraft role. Uh, and he was changed, trained to be a loader, to pick up uh, like a box-type magazine to affix to the gun uh, whilst it's in action so the ammunition supply could come about. You had a, a gun commander that would spot where, the, where, your, where your targets are, and you'd have someone on, on firing it. And, of course, you'd have someone like Teddy's role to be the loader, and you might have another person to also do the loading. But it's very important to note that when they did that training, that all the men were, were trained in each one of those positions with on the gun. So that's, that's the sort of thing he was doing in his training and being in the Navy, other than doing all your basic stuff that you'd need to be to be a sailor. How much do we know about him as a, as a person? Did he leave behind diaries or letters home to his mum? I mean, he's, he's come into attention only relatively recently, but 
how much did we know about him as a person and his motivations and 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 what he thought about being in the in the navy yeah i haven't been able to find too much uh, certainly not a diary but uh, i have read several accounts from this one chap still alive at the moment but that knew him uh but for all intents and purposes i believe he was a quiet uh, guy he had uh, this sense of wanting to do his duty that we spoke about before. He had this idea that he uh, was living up to his other siblings' um, service, you know, to be in the in the in the Second World War. Uh, what we do know about him is that he was um, uh, didn't get any any trouble, and he was very fit. He was uh, pro- if you were to look at people back in those days, uh, you know, he uh, was certainly uh, physically. I think he was about one hundred and seventy four centimeters tall, but he was quite. Uh, fit, muscularly looking by comparison to to his peers. And I would suggest that that probably came about from where he grew up and the sorts of things that he did, uh, like being a, being a, a labourer before, before the war. So he was assigned to the HMAS Armadale. Um, tell us about that ship, the sort of roles that... Let's, let's talk broadly about if you were in the Navy in 1942 in that sort of role on that sort of ship, what sort of activities you could be expected to be doing um, what work were those uh, those types of ships doing at that time? Yeah, so uh, he's assigned to HMAS Armadale, which is a Bathurst-class uh, corvette, a minesweeper. Uh, these vessels, and I think there was around about um, 60 of them um, uh, to, to be built, and um, and we, we, Australia, used quite a few of them. Uh, there were 640-odd tonnes, and they were really built to be able to be an escort and a, and a vessel to... Um, patrol, if you will, the coast of Australia. They were pretty uh, small ship, weren't they? They were small and fast. They weren't. It wasn't a big battleship he was on or anything, was it? No, they were. They were small. They were easy to produce. They were. They had um, those guns that I mentioned before, the Oracle um, deck-mounted cannons. Plus, I think they had a, uh, a four-inch gun on it, and they had the ability to drop um, death charge, uh, depth charges. But um, no, they weren't. They weren't a big ship by all accounts. They weren't going to send them into battle against other ships. So really, for escort duties and for patrolling. And that's what they did. And in fact, um, as a side note, one of the roles that Armadale did was actually escort troops to Port Moresby, to New Guinea. And in particular, um, uh, Teddy Sheenan was on uh, the Armadale when when it went up there escorting the 25th Brigade, uh, who would come in at the tail end of the Kokoda campaign. So that's the sort of role that they would they would do. They would escort uh, other ships, supply troop ships, and especially doing that route along the east coast between. Um, you know, Australia and, and Papua New Guinea. So Teddy joined the Navy at a time when Australia felt hugely under threat. I mean, 1942 was one of the most confronting years, I think, in Australian history. The, as you say, the midget submarine attack on Sydney Harbour, we had the, you know, the Japanese bombing Darwin. Just describe what it must have been like for people at that time in 1942. What was the atmosphere when Teddy joined the Navy? What was their feeling about the war and the threat from Japan? Well, there's no mistake about it. Everyone that I've spoken to, whether it be civilian or, or somebody in the services in that time, you think we had censorship. There would there was really a dark cloud over as Japan had entered the war. Uh, Britain was already bogged down in, in North Africa and, on its, uh, and in Europe. And we felt that we were cut off. We were alone. And we genuinely felt that invasion was imminent. It's okay to say after the fact that Japan wasn't going to invade, but you just imagine if you're one of those fam- Imagine uh, Sheehan's family back in Tasmania, for example. Uh, little information, what information you had was censored, and you thought that here we are at the, uh, the, at the back end of the world, 
with this formidable enemy coming to uh, change our way of life. So it would have been an air of, in fact, I could only thing that I could come close to imagining what it would have been like is what we are going under now with, with COVID. I'm in lockdown in Melbourne. Uh, there's this passive information you're getting from the radio or the TV and there's uncertainty. So imagine this huge uncertainty and you think to yourself, I've got to do something. What can I do? And obviously for young men like Teddy, uh, the thing that you would do is to, is to join up and do your bit for the war effort to get us out of this mess. Must have been a terrifying time. Do we know Do we know anything about Teddy during his service? We, we know a lot about his act of bravery, which we'll get to uh, in a moment, but do we know about his service in the months leading up to that? Was he was he you know was he recommended for other awards? Was he considered a, an outstanding member of the crew? Do we know if he or was he just or was he just an ordinary sailor who just got on and, and did the job? He, by all accounts, he was an ordinary sailor, a quiet man who uh, you know did, did did his job. By the time we get to the VC action, he's not in the navy very long. And the other thing too to remember is that. That back in 1942, there was a huge influx of of Australians joining the military, and from the time you trained to the time that you were in action, uh, isn't a very long time. Uh, you know, you just had to get on and learn learn your job, and literally uh, get thrown into the into the fray. So, by all accounts, all we know uh, is that he was a quiet man, hardworking, but yes, he was. Um, Somebody that was just in the background. Uh, the, the, he was the youngest, and he was the um, uh, of the of the lowest rank on on his, in his complement on his ship. Um, so he didn't stand out in the history books. If it hadn't have been for this action we're getting to, we would probably have never heard of him. And in effect, he might have had it not been for this action, as we're talking about, he might have had a relatively quiet war. You know, a lot of those blokes in the navy that I've spoken to. The idea that you would be engaged in heavy combat uh, it was was the exception rather than the rule a lot of the time. So it's interesting to note that that so many people had, you know, I don't say this to denigrate anyone who served, but just it was so important that you had these ordinary blokes who just got on with their job, fought their war. Often in the Navy, their war was a very boring one, uh, but just did their part and were absolutely essential to the war effort. Without a doubt, I think um, that there's a lot of job roles that we don't think so much of. And if you think about... Uh, what uh, Teddy's job role would have been. You do your training, you're in the Navy, you obviously have what I mentioned about what happened in Sydney Harbour, but other than that, it would have been very routine. It'd be long hours, uh, you're obviously away, you're on a ship. You would have in the back of your head probably, I would suggest, at least, if not a fear, but the inclination that your submarines, because obviously a lot of Japanese submarines, I'm not talking about the ones in the harbour, but going up and down that coast doing those ferry runs, but for the most part it would have been very mundane. You would have gone about your job, you would have done all the other things that you have to do as sailors to live on a ship uh, and to go on these journeys up and back uh, really as... um, uh, in milk runs, I guess you could call them, uh, which, and as you say, often went without anything, without seeing any, you know, you might see some dolphins would probably be, I would suggest, your highlight of those long hours out at sea. I mean, it would have been good in, in part, but the thing is it would have been mundane. It would have been um, it would have been just a, a thing that you would get used to um, with an uncomfortable ease. So, uh, the main thing would be that you're away from home and you're separated. And again, it's important to remind, especially younger listeners at that time, you know, you're not picking up a phone and, and ringing home. Uh, you're you're out at sea for a long time or then you're in port. Um, you probably would be uh, m- most 
worried about uh, getting into trouble or, uh, when you're on shore leave, um, if and when those things came. Now, remember, Teddy operated out of uh, out of Sydney, and also later on, um, those ships went through Townsville and Cairns on these escort duties. Um, there's not much up there. Uh, you would have you would have had to been left to your own devices, and and your friends, and this is very important to the story, your mates on on the ship, they became your family, and they were part of your everyday um you know routine and they you know they were this this form this strong friendship as, as and and what which i think had a huge part in in getting to to what teddy ends up doing well let's talk a bit more about that so it's november 1942 what was the what was armadale involved in what missions was she operating at that time so after doing these runs up and down the east coast um um, Armadale moves to Darwin, and they've actually tasked on 29 November 42. They're actually tasked to to undertake a mission with another similar same class of ship, uh, HMAS Castlemaine, and they are tasked to go off to Timor. And if uh, I think in history uh, earlier on in on the year, start of the year, Timor falls, and we still have Sparrow Force fighting a guerrilla war uh, against the Japanese and the tasking uh, for Armadale and and Castle Maine was to go to um to Timor uh with the idea to put down uh some um uh, second AIF guys and some um uh, other guerrilla fighters i think it was two dutch officers and a, and a small complement of um of guerrillas to go back in and relieve um uh, some of the men of Sparrow Force but also to take um uh, some civilians, Portuguese uh, civilians, off off of Timor and get them back to Australia. Tell us about how that mission went and uh, and and what led to uh, Teddy's heroic act. The Armadale and the Castle Maine uh, set off and they were to sail uh, to meet another uh, ship, a smaller ship, uh, more of a supply ship called the uh, Kuru, and uh, they uh, had already taken on. Um, uh, some of these civilians that they were trying to get off Timor. And uh, on their way, not long after leaving uh, Darwin, they actually uh, get spotted by a Japanese plane, a reconnaissance plane. And uh, they have their first uh, brush, if you will, with with the Japanese air uh, forces. And uh, Australian bowfighters took off and actually turn back some of the um, Japanese aircraft. We should say at this point, David, that because the Japanese are occupying Timor and Java and pretty much all of Indonesia, this was dangerous work, wasn't it? This was going into the lion's den, sending ships up to this region that, that were occupied by the Japanese. Yeah, uh, yeah, again, you know, moving away from doing these runs up and down the East Coast, this is now, uh, the, 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 the um, game has changed. They're actually being sent off on what, in effect, is a... Um, is you know you, my impression of it is that they've they've given the navy's given some assets to this, but uh, you know they don't have that much support. They've got some air cover that can come out of Darwin, but the chances are when you're out in the sea, you could run into other Japanese ships. You could run in as they did to Japanese air force. So it, the, the 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 stakes are upped, if you will. This is uh, this is not something to be scoffed at. This is a proper uh, you know mission that has uh, an uh, that that they knew could have. Um, the outcome that happened. It was very risky. Well, from a naval perspective, it's almost like operating behind enemy lines, isn't it? Because the Japanese had control of large areas of the sea, air cover. This is dangerous for ships to be going up and, and operating in this way. 
Well, exactly. And when they left, um, when they leave our waters, really, and they head out into the open ocean and they're away from, uh, you know, they, the distance gets behind them from, from where they came from, you you think that they are, they're, they're susceptible. And the mission that they're undertaking, on one hand, has to be low key. Because remember, as I said earlier, that their job, uh, one of their primary um, tasks of their mission was to put down other commandos, if you will, guerrilla fighters, to get them back into Timor. Because we should also highlight the fact that, like, the second, second independent company that had been operating there, they were uh, had basically been cut off and they were relying on, um, you know, some resupply and... Um, for this relief, if you will, and you couldn't get large forces in in there, or you couldn't bring in big supply ships and things like that. It had to be almost a well, it was it was a Cladstein operation, and you would be running the gauntlet of of whether or not you're going to get blown out of the water by a ship or a, or a plane. So let's talk about the fateful day and uh, and Teddy's uh, act of heroism. So basically, as uh, w- when they went there, the the other ship that they were to to, to link up with the Kuru, it had already taken on some. Um, some civilians, and that was in the process of um, trans- transferring these to um, to the other ship, Castle Maine, and the Armadale uh, was in support of this, and they were to meet, the ships were to meet uh, a contact, if you will, uh, to do with the commandos to put down, or the guerrilla fighters, I should say, to put down these other men in their ship, and they didn't get to that. They, they, they couldn't achieve that because no one turned up. The story is nobody turned up to to allow them to make that contact. So they went about the other part of it, and that was to take back these um, these uh, civilians uh, and some military personnel to get them back and to get them off. And so as they're doing that, you can imagine uh, they're at sea, they're trying to um, afford to do this, and uh, they, get, um, they, 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 they get contacted, if you will, they get spotted by Japanese planes, they came over and they give them a bit of curry, uh, but... Uh, they realise they can't do their other uh, objective to lay down the, the other people that they want to put on uh, down on land, and so that's decided back from um, Darwin that they would that the Castle Maine would take, they that transferred these people, they would take them and and withdraw them back, leaving the other two ships out there. Uh, I would suggest at this point that it became uh, quite chaotic. They're at sea, uh, the Japanese know that they're there, and they start coming over, and I think. Uh, it's something ridiculous. It's something like seven hours they are harassed and attacked by Japanese planes. We have to think it's not like a movie where this all just happens in a in, in a few moments and there's big bangs and all. This is you know out the sea. The planes have to spot them and they go about their business and they are harassed uh, for for you know the best part of a working day in the middle of the ocean. It's it's quite um, you know crazy. Um, to even think about uh, that it's not over very quickly. And the terror, I could only imagine the terror if you were somebody on the ship uh, knowing that you're a sitting duck out in the ocean. It would have been, uh, it's not those milk runs up and down the east coast. And what led to that moment when the uh, when Armadale got hit? In the in, By about lunchtime, uh, and this, sorry, is on, on, on the 1st of December. The, uh, and remember, they only set sail on the 29th of November. So the... The Japanese planes come come over and they start um, they start attacking the, the the ship. Most, from what I can gather, most of the hands on the ship that weren't uh, to be employed in in a role of trying to um, fend off uh, the enemy had all. Most of them had ga- gathered in the mess in the mess deck. The two ships um, um, separate. They end up leaving. Uh, so Castle Maine is gone, but the supply vessel in Armadale. 
they separate. And of course, the captain of the Armadale, as any captain would in a ship to try and avoid attack from the air, starts to manoeuvre the vessel. So those things could be, um, uh, you know, zigzagging, trying to... And you, you know, it's almost comical, but it is one, one sort of defence that they can have. You imagine a plane comes over to do its run and the ship is zigzagging. One of the reasons that zigzagging is important to note is not because it's trying to escape plane shooting uh, machine guns at them is because within the assets that the Japanese had, of course, they had uh, planes that could drop a torpedo, and it's the torpedo that drops in the water, and that's what the ship is trying to do to manoeuvre to get away out of the path of the torpedo, because the torpedo drops in, it's on its course, and that's all the captain and and the crew of the ship can actually do to try and avoid, in addition to being able to fire back. And remember, the Armadale only has three of these guns on it which Sheenan was one of the one of the crew on one of those guns. So you've got three guns that could fire up at the planes and to avoid getting a torpedo drop from a plane, the ship starts to zigzag. And you could imagine, um, uh, you know, that if you were one of those other people on the ship, you're all g- gathered in, in into the mess deck um, if you weren't at a station. Uh, the, the fear that you would have, I mean, the, the, it would have been a scene of um, organised chaos is all I could describe it as. At sea. So tell us about Teddy and uh, and his heroic act. Look, this so it kicks off really. It intensifies around half half twelve on that day, and by um, uh, quarter past three in the afternoon, two of these torpedoes, which are dropped from planes, and you remember the planes, the Japanese planes come in, line it up, drop the torpedo, uh, and you know two of them got on, and um, at, at quarter past three in that afternoon, one hits. Um, the ship in the port side, and the other one hits it aft. And um, as I said, all the sailors, on the, a lot of the sailors, not all, but a lot of the sailors on the ship had all gathered into the, in, into the middle deck, if you will, and a lot of them in, in that second torpedo actually are killed instantly. There's a big explosion in the middle of the ship. And really, the ship's had it by the time that these two torpedoes um, hit. The commander of the Armadale was a guy named um, David Richards, Lieutenant Commander Dave Richards. He's a CO, and he gives... A, an order that I guess no captain wants to wants to give, and that order is to abandon ship. And when that order is given, you could just imagine that men are running to. They would have already had a a procedure, of course, to uh, put the life lifeboats down, uh, to to do what they need to do um, to get off the ship. And if you're a crew and you've heard heard that, you everyone now definitely knows that the ship. You've got to get off. That's the end of the ship. Bye-bye. We've got to go. And Sheenan himself was one of the guys who were assisting. Because remember, everyone would have had a secondary role on the ship. And he starts lowering down a uh, one of the life lifeboats to get the other people. And there's a hundred. it's important to know there's 149 um, uh, sailors, uh, all ranks, on this ship. And whilst that's going on, you've got... Um, those guns, those three guns, they're firing up in the up up towards the Japanese planes. So there was just chaos, and the ship by now it, it's not again a small ship. Two torpedoes has hit it and hit it, and by all accounts, the ship has rolled down to it towards its port side. So the whole ship has been displaced in the water. Men are now in the water. Some men are dead. It is chaos, and the Japanese are relentless. They keep coming. They keep coming. So. Where this comes about for, for this 18-year-old guy, he stops after he's finished doing what he's doing with the life raft, he runs back to his gun position. And it's important to note that at some point, we don't exactly know how, but at some point 
from the strafing from the planes, he himself, Teddy, is wounded. He's wounded in the chest and he's wounded in the back. Now, obviously, those wounds uh, weren't enough to stop him, but I'm sure he, uh, you know, being a fit guy, he's copped these wounds and all he's thought about was going back to the gun. And I would suggest that the reason he did that is because he, you know, everyone's abandoning ship, but the planes are still coming over and still firing at them. And he's trying his best uh, in his mind to get guys away and to get back on his gun because that's his, remember, that's his primary role. And even though he wasn't the actual guy that does the firing, he goes back and he starts shooting at these ships. And we know from accounts that at least one of the Japanese planes was brought down by his gun. It's just extraordinary. I mean, in that situation, and this is why we talk about the Victoria Cross, who would do that? You know, everyone would be panicking. I mean, these are brave men, of course, and you'd assume that many of them were keeping their heads, but at the same time, men would be panicking, men would be wounded, the ship's sinking, men are in the water from accounts, the Japanese are strafing the men in the water. It's just an extraordinary act that he would go to that gun rather than, especially once he's been wounded, instead of saving himself and, and, uh, and getting in a life raft, he would then return to that gun and, uh, and open fire on the Japanese. Well, the, the account, exactly, he's, look, he's, he's wounded, he's helped his guys, and he runs back to the gun position. And this gun, uh, you can imagine, it has these two um, uh, braces that come over and go over your shoulders to give the, the guy that's firing it um, the, the correct firing position and, and to manoeuvre the gun. And you remember it's on a sort of a pintle mount and he's able to move the gun left and right. It's got a big open iron uh, iron sight, like a, a circle for anti-aircraft with your, with your crosshairs and, and whatnot in it. And um, his, his only focus and uh, is that he's pointing that cannon up into the air and, and shooting at the uh, Japanese planes with... He can't save the ship. The ship's already lost. He's there really to make that ultimate sacrifice to save his mates. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Remember his family, even though they were mundane, runs up and down the East Coast, he was away from home, he's only 18, uh, they were his mates. And so I guess if there was ever uh, a case for a gallantry award, especially from the Australian perspective, to do something heroic, it's often done for your mates. And that's, I think, what makes this story uh, resonate even more today. So what happened as the ship finally sank? Well, uh, what happened is that, um, um, and look, there, there's been there was there's still one chap alive, but there is accounts of of looking back at Sheenan on the gun. He continues to fire. You, you can I can picture this scene in my head where the ship is literally going under the water, and the cannon being on the top deck is still firing until the water snuffs it out. And by all accounts, that's exactly what's happened. Around it, there would have been chaos. The, you know, when a ship goes down. Uh, from what I've read of the accounts of ships sinking, you don't want to be right next to the ship. You want to get get away. So there was life rafts. There was men just jumped had jumped off the side in the open water trying to swim out from the ship. And his friend, his mates are looking back, looking at this guy strapped onto the gun, keep firing at the Japanese, which you know um, they have to worry about now. They are in the water, and the Japanese are still above, and they were shooting men men were hit in the water by the machine guns uh, from the Japanese planes. And Sheenan continues to fire until the last. And in fact, what's not highlighted, um, I haven't heard too much about in all of this, is what happens after Sheenan and the ship goes down. Uh, he's, 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 the planes have uh, got their target, they move on, um, but the men are still out at sea and they remain so for the, for the best part of five, five days and some are never found. 
Just an unbelievable account all all around. I, I can't imagine the chaos and the terror, and but just that that stark example of bravery of strapping yourself into that gun and firing until the ship goes down, taking you with it. My big question for this, David, is there's there's, there's great accounts of this, and I know that I know that Sheehan was uh, was mentioned in dispatches for his bravery, but with so many witness accounts, he sacrificed his life. He, he, he undoubtedly saved many of the men who were on that ship. Why wasn't he recommended for Victoria Cross at the time? I think for two two reasons. Uh, one uh, is because the mission itself, as we said before, uh, whilst it wasn't a, a major secret like some of the other actions that uh, was taking place at that time, it wasn't had it didn't have a huge support. What I failed to mention before is that you know once they come under attack, the the ships actually ask for air cover to be sent, and none, none comes. So. That in itself is that they're really they've got some orders. They do have communication with Darwin, but they're out there on their own. Um, and there's a there's an entire loss of a ship. In fact, I don't believe that the the, the the captain of the ship ever gets another posting where he's where he's in that kind of role. He survives, by the way. Uh, but I think that the other combined with the fact of 149 hands, only 49 survive. It is a disaster. We're under censorship. You know, one of the reasons why we probably don't hear about it uh, is because uh, it, was, it wasn't was spoken about. And I also believe that a lot of the complement that did survive and stay in get separated and go off to do other things in the Navy. So they don't really have a chance to tell the story. So he gets the MID. They close the book. They move on. Uh, and, you know, if it wasn't for uh, his his descendants, his family and for other people, who knew of this uh, to have been, I think it's been going for 30 odd years uh, intensely now to try and get this um, award for him. Uh, he probably would just be an MID in the, in the book and the book closed. It's a really fair point you're making there, David, is that especially during wartime, if actions are a disaster, you know, I use, I, I'm using an example here of uh, Fromel during the First World War, for example, there were, there were huge numbers of brave acts that occurred during the disastrous Battle of Fromel in 1916. And men were not nominated for awards uh, during that time because the attack itself was just such a disaster. And I think there's, when I've read the accounts here, there's elements of that. In wartime, when you're always trying to paint the best picture of what's going on, you never want to highlight the fact that the Japanese are sinking your ships and killing Australians. You want to highlight that we're taking the fight to the enemy. It, 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 uh, there is a feeling there that, yes, although it was undoubtedly brave what he did at that time, it was during a bit of a disaster for the Navy, that we lost a ship, 100 men were killed. Uh, and so there is an element where they go, I know it was incredibly brave, but we don't want to highlight the fact that the Japanese, you know, really kicked our bums in this uh, in this encounter. Look, I think that that's hitting the nail on the head. The fact of the matter is they didn't succeed in, whilst the other Castleman got those people back that we mentioned before, they didn't succeed completely in their mission. They've lost a whole ship Uh you know, it's not something that to go and put on the front page of the newspapers as a morale booster for the for for the large population of Australia to read. It is something that didn't work. It was the the mission overall was. Uh, I'm not at no point questioning the bravery of any of the people involved, but it wasn't a success. It was a victory for the Japanese. They sunk one of our ships. So again, uh, bravery. MID. Close the book. Let's move on. Um, but did it make it any less real for those men that saw his bravery there? The answer to that is no. And, um, you know, I'm always reminded of the, um, of the words of uh, Ted Kennevisi, who said that the biggest battle in the world is the battle that you're in. And for those small group of men, which they were a small group when you think of it, on that ship 
being attacked in the open ocean by the Japanese planes, ship sunk by torpedoes. I mean, what, I mean that that was that was the biggest battle in the world, biggest battle of the Second World War for those guys, and um, and losing uh, most of your yeah. mates as well. The, 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 being, and losing being the mates. minority of the survivors, you know. Yeah, and 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 you know the other thing too that that I was saying before about the aftermath of it all. You know, there was men on 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 life rafts that were not who were not found. Uh, I'm not sure how many, but they sent out. Uh, I think on the sixth sixth of December they 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 come across a planes our planes spot guys in the ocean. The heroic ordeal of the men uh, afterwards that were on these um, you know, out in the open ocean in life boats and to think of the exposure to the elements and I and I can't help but thinking of those guys who were there uh, uh, who were not found and who knows how long how many days after they were still in a in a in a life raft but bobbing up and down in the ocean not found so again loss of a ship loss of men out at sea not found you don't want to publicize this well I guess it took the the hindsight of decades for us to really appreciate it for what it was because it you know it was one of those things that was not going to be pretty widely publicized during the war it it probably took the fact that the war was long in the past and that these these things didn't matter anymore about morale and you know painting a good picture of what was going on so what was the process that led to Teddy finally being awarded the Victoria Cross well my understanding is that there was um there uh was uh, a process, two two real uh, boards. There was two boards that were put tasked together because of of people, uh, including the, um, the the nephew over these years, and and a couple of Tasmanian senators. One in particular that kept rattling um, the, uh, the drum, if you will, trying to get uh, this over the line uh, for Teddy. And he's not the only one. Obviously, there's many other cases where family members and other people have tried to get this. But I think, um, you know, that that came about uh, the fact that they would, in 2013, I believe, they put together a panel that was to uh, review the action that we just spoke about and to make a recommendation on whether they thought the uh, highest award would be warranted. And that, that uh, process came back with a negative view, that they didn't think that they that he that he warranted a Victoria Cross. By no means did, did anyone say that he, his actions weren't gallant, but they weren't um, they weren't to uh, to be such that it would uh, require uh, the, the the award of a Victoria Cross. And if we fast forward uh, you know seven years later uh, Brendan Nelson, who we all know, who was head of the Australian War Memorial, headed up another panel, and uh, and they had made uh, recommendations to the Prime Minister that in fact that the award uh, should be granted of the Victoria Cross, and that new evidence came to light. Now I'm only speculating now because it's not not um, available this information, but I believe because you think about what it takes for a Victoria Cross. Uh, to get across the line in terms of witnesses at the time. But some of that new information, I believe, came from um, uh, Japanese reports and that the uh, Japanese uh, pilots, I presume, or the crew on those uh, planes uh, had could... Because remember, the ship only had three guns and one gun is still going as the ship's going down under the water. That's something that if you were one of those uh, aircrew or pilot, you would have taken note of. And so new evidence comes to light and recommendations come, uh, obviously, to our, to our Prime Minister, who then in turn uh, decided that he would make the make the um, nomination and put it to Her Majesty the Queen, and it came back. And, um, uh, you know, the first, uh, very important, people may not know, but it's the first Victoria Cross for the Royal Australian Navy. There weren't any other 
Victoria Cross recipients for the Royal Australian Navy. This is the first. So um, a process where a panel looks at it, uh, looks at many. Are they fitting? Yes, maybe, no, knocked it back. And because other people thought that this particular action stood out among many others, and it's not denigrating the bravery of the others um, that I'm sure went before various panels over the years, but this particular one um, uh, had two reviews, independent reviews, made different conclusions, and then new evidence comes to light. And uh, isn't it wonderful in the lead-up to VP Day, uh, Victory in the Pacific anniversary, 75 years, that we get a Navy, our first Navy Victoria Cross. We should also point out that this is not the same award he would have received had he been nominated for it in 1942 because he has been awarded the Victoria Cross for Australia, which is the new award that only came in in 1991. It's probably a slight technicality, but it's worth it's worth mentioning as well that uh, that makes it even more unusual that uh, the, the, the Victoria Cross for Australia is a modern award intended for members of the ADF, uh, the Australian Defence Force. So it's, it's a fascinating... Um, a fascinating situation that someone from nearly 80 years ago has received uh, what is effectively a, a very new award. Without a doubt, and it also raises the question, are there others? Are there others deserving of the Victoria Cross? Um, I guess yet to be seen. If we hear this, might, is this the last VC we hear of? I think the thing is I should say about this, David, is I'm normally not a fan of these of these of looking back in the past and determining that a mistake was made and then correcting it decades later i i you know i was not a fan of the idea that john monash should be promoted to field marshal that simpson and his donkey should be the man who received a vc you know i i, I always look back on these things and think they say a lot more about us than they do about the people at the time um but i have to say in this instance i think this is fitting i, I would never say a mistake was made because there would be countless examples from the second world war from every war where men performed incredible acts of bravery that for whatever reason were just missed out and those men were not awarded. I've seen lots of accounts myself from the First World War in particular of men who, who were not awarded bravery awards for incredible acts of bravery. So I would never say that they made a mistake back then, but I think looking back on it um, and, as you say, that new information coming forward, I, I think it's the right conclusion. Where do, where do you sit on this? How do you feel about the, the, the award of this VC? Well, I feel the same as you, Matt, with any of these retrospective. I wasn't a huge uh, fan of uh, Sir John Monash being made uh, field marshal. Uh, I, I'm, and the reason I'm not is because I think that, um, I think you're right. I think this is more about us. It sort of reflects on our feeling at the time. And uh, I caution against it uh, because uh, where do you where do you draw the line? I think the ca- this particular case, though, I think that... Um, what it's highlighting, and it is it is to a certain extent about us, but what it's highlighting, and you mentioned that it's the new award of, of the Victoria, that not the same Victoria Cross he would have received in 1942, but we're, we are looking back and we're saying that, you know, this person, uh, we're, we're championing uh, mateship, we're, we're championing all those ideals that modern Australia tries to uh, take away from that great generation. So, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of, of retrospectively giving these awards. I think uh, I think this reward uh, uh, is done for our time, and I think it's it's probably the right time in the lead up to VP Day. But I would I would say this one thing on it: uh, whether he got the Victoria Cross or not, the real uh, not reward, but the real uh, service that has been done to 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 Teddy and to others that that, that have has names have come forward is that they are remembered and they are remembered for, for their great feats. Um, you know, I just think that we should be careful about uh, going back in history and finding because we're interpreting through the eyes that we have now. And I hope when the findings do come out 
that a lot of that information was relied on and that new information by, and it wouldn't be the first time that you have recommendations from your enemy where you take into account what your enemy has said about you, um, that, you know, that we, we've done it because the feeling at the time, had it not been for those other reasons that we spoke about, that it was a disaster, that the war moved on, there's plenty of other things going on, that that he was deservant within that time. I think it's very I warn and caution people against presentism about using the ideas that we have today to look back and judge those of the past. Well, David, it's just a fascinating story, and thank you for sharing your um, your insights into it. Because I think it is important that we we understand the full story when things like this occur. That we don't just take it at face value, and that we understand that th- these are complicated stories, and it's a difficult journey. But I think I think we all agree at the end that uh, that Teddy Sheehan is deserving of his Victoria Cross. And I think it's great that, uh, that, that this has occurred. But uh, just thank you so much for your time, David. No worries. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.